Talk Girl podcast. We're talking technology today, the big T. Absolutely. Everyone's talking about technology these days because it's everywhere. Oh, it is. You can't escape it. You absolutely can't. So, Dee, tell us what you feel about technology. How, how do you, what's your opinion on it? This is The Law School Show, discovering the person behind the resume, bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone. This is Marco Filiomeni, the newest addition to The Law School Show team. I'm at the very sleek-looking facilities at the Mars Discovery District today. I'm going to be chatting with Shane Murphy, who, along with Derek Hopfner and Travis Houlette, they founded Law Scout, an online platform that's just an example of the changing face of the Canadian legal industry. Shane is a former litigator in Toronto, serving franchises and small businesses. Today, we're going to explore Shane's background, what drove him and his colleagues to start Law Scout, and we're also going to be discussing the impact of technology on the provision of legal services the alternative legal career paths that it can create, and what it all means for the training of lawyers. You can check out the Law Scout website at lawscout.ca and also follow the company on Twitter under the handle at mylawscout. So let's dive right in. Shane, thrilled to have you on the show. Thanks for hosting me in your office today. Um, why don't we start off by having you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, where are you from? Where did you complete your undergrad? Where did you go to law school? Where did you article? Sure. Well, thanks, Marco. I went to law school at McGill, uh, but before that, I uh, did a master's degree in political theory at the London School of Economics. And even before that, I did my undergrad at the University of Toronto. Uh, my, my original goal was to go into academia. I was looking at doctorate programs, but then by the time I completed my master's degree, I started thinking of something different, and uh, that's what made me decide uh, I would try law school and then ended up at McGill after that. Okay, cool. So when you were in law school, do you recall any courses or extracurriculars that really shaped your experience or your mindset going into articling and going into practice? The, there were a few, but probably the, the major one was working at the McGill Law Journal. I was the, what they call the executive editor of the journal, which just helped me look at various branches of law, interact with a lot of professors, and sort of look at law from a real uh, high-up distance where mm -hmm. I could see trends and the direction that various branches of law were going. So that was probably the most formative. Okay, interesting. So how for how many years were you practicing? Well, I practiced for four years at the firm Sotos LLP here in Toronto, okay. and I articled at a, at a large firm, Bennett Jones, before I went over to Sotos. So if articling counts, I had a total of, of five years, and uh, I was very lucky at Sotos. I got a lot of opportunity to be in court. My mm -hmm. last two years at Sotos were uh, very intense litigation-based practice. Uh, I was doing appeals by myself in the Court of Appeal by the time I was left. So I was uh, wow. I was very fortunate in the amount of actual practical in-court experience I was able to get there. Awesome. So, okay, so you're essentially practicing for five years. After Sotos, did you, is that when you dived right into law school or did you have any other type of experience in the interim? 
No, I actually left Sotos just two months ago, and okay. Moscow has been up and running for one month, so there was just one month in that in between of preparing Lostcoat for the launch. Although uh, the idea behind Lostcoat uh, goes back uh, a few years, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that later on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let me ask you, uh, what was the job market like for you, say, five, six years ago when you were applying for articles or for an associate position? Yeah, well, that, that's a funny story. My, my search for an articling position came at Historically, probably the worst time to ever look for an articling position. I don't was. know about that. Now it's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It does go up and down always. <laughs> but I believe my, my OCIs were in October of 2008, if I recall correctly, okay. which was uh, mere weeks after the collapse of uh, Lehman Brothers in the, in the U.S. All right. uh, there was a lot of, uh, of worried lawyers unsure how that would spill in, into Canada and uh, there were firms that were literally pulling their OCI teams back to the, the head office and canceling interviews because they oh, just wow. they couldn't make informed hiring decisions. And uh, originally, my plan was to uh, to pursue an associate position in New York when oh, wow. I was at McGill, uh, which uh, sort of became a, it, it was something that people felt almost entitled to at, at some point. There was an idea that if you worked hard, you did reasonably well. Uh, New York firms were, were hiring like crazy in the early 2000s. That idea fell apart very quickly, uh, <laughs> and I uh, started looking at other options. And uh, But I, I was quite fortunate and ended up at a, a good firm for my articling and then also a good firm to start out as an associate. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so what would you say were the major challenges of being a practicing lawyer? The major challenges... I think are for almost every junior lawyer is finding finding good mentorship and finding mm -hmm. someone who balances an aspect of of hand holding mm -hmm. and but also there's an aspect of sink or swim involved in in learning how to be in a a good junior associate you need to have someone who trusts you to throw you into situations without a lot of guidance right because the, for myself and for a lot of people, that's when you really start learning, when you when you have to focus on uh, what you're doing and not just simply imitating uh, someone else. Hmm, interesting. Um, so I'm curious, for, for uh, you know, newly licensed lawyers or, you know, recent grads who maybe don't have the infrastructure of a larger firm and they're at a smaller shop, and they're kind of out on their own when, when they start practicing. Do you know of any ways to get informal mentorship, not necessarily from someone in your office, but you know, just in the legal community? What, do you have any recommendations there? In the, with the Ontario Bar Association, I'm not specifically familiar with the name of the program, but they do have for uh, a mentoring program mm -hmm. with the OBA for junior lawyers who are going out on their own or operating in very, you know, perhaps with some of their colleagues, recent graduates, where they'll match you with a, a partner at a, a larger firm, or not necessarily even a partner, but someone with, with experience. So uh, I would encourage your listeners who are not law students to perhaps look into that mentoring program, because I know they are always looking for experienced lawyers who, uh, who are willing to volunteer some time to help out uh, recent grads in the early stages of their careers. Okay, awesome. That sounds great. Um, what would you say was the most rewarding part uh, in your time as a lawyer? Well, I, I can be quite competitive myself, and it, you know, it, it can be, sound like a superficial answer, but there's really nothing quite like winning a case when... <laughs> when you know, I know that feel, man. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are some cases where it's not clear. Most cases aren't clear-cut. There's never 
uh, usually you'll you'll settle it or someone will back down if there if there really is a clear winner. So, but we, to argue a case and to have it go in, into your favor uh, is at least accountable to your resilience and your advocacy advocacy skills. So that, that that's uh, that's definitely rewarding, even if it is uh, a slightly self fulfilling answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sweet. So, in your experience as a lawyer or through conversations or from literature that you may have read along the years. What do you consider to be the major problems in the provision of legal services in Canada today? I mean, that's a pretty like loaded question. Like, I guess whatever comes to mind. <laughs> well, well, there's been a lot said, of course, about access to justice, but I think you can break access to justice down in, into two uh, big categories where there, there's an education component mm -hmm. of ensuring that people outside of the legal world are able to learn about the legal system, both procedural and the aspect of their rights, uh, there, there needs to be a better way for people just to access good quality legal information so they can inform themselves. And then the other huge component is, is affordability, which is mm -hmm. something with, with LawScout we're also trying trying to address. Again, we'll, we'll get into that later, but uh, education and affordability are, are these things that the legal profession needs to look at and say, what are we really doing to address these? Okay, and do you think that the profession... Um, a profession that's steeped in tradition has the ability to adapt, and when, why or why not? It, it certainly has the ability to adapt. It, it, it will have to adapt at some point, but we'll, ha we'll have to look at where the pressure is coming for to, to push the profession to to adapt. I, I think there's people outside the profession, entrepreneurs, people building mm -hmm. uh, new ways of looking at the legal system, who will be gaining momentum and the profession will have to adapt by reacting to to alternatives to traditional law firms. Interesting. So so you think it'll be more of a reaction than a premeditated like maybe we should plan for the future. Law firms have not been great about planning for <laughs> for, for the future. And I, I think partially really? it's it, it might be generational. There mm -hmm. are the people right now in the senior positions at several law firms are are looking at retirement mm. and I don't believe that's their their interest in innovation and uh, and change is is limited as they they see that their careers will be coming to an end before uh, there is an actual drastic tangible need to change. So there's a certain aspect within the legal profession that is saying, I just want to get out before this whole thing falls apart, <laughs> and that is what young lawyers, law students need to look at uh, because it's definitely not the people in control of, right. of law firms who are going to be driving the change. Exactly. Okay. Um, so what do you think are the major factors, uh, I mean you've already touched on it, but what, what do you think are the major factors that actually drive change? Like how can you, how can you go about practically changing attitudes and, and galvanize people to, or sorry, galvanize new lawyers to, to do something, to, to see yeah. like you know, you can't rest on your laurels. You got to think about the future. The obvious driver of change will be clients. Clients of law firms are going to become increasingly skeptical, mm. and they're already saying, "Why can't my law firm act more like an engineering firm? Why can't they approach a legal project in the same way uh, that an engineer would?" With a focus on precision with timing, preci precision with costs, as opposed to this very abstract approach a lot of lawyers take to 
their project management where they simply say there's a lot of variables we're not sure how this is going to go we don't you know we'll do our best but we're <laughs> not, we uh, we can't give you a precise quote and I, so i think Clients are, are definitely taking a position now where they want a more focused approach. But, but the less obvious driver of change is young lawyers themselves, lawyers who are being hired by law firms where the, the technological outlook and the look yeah. on innovation is a, a bit of a relic from the 1980s. And as I was saying before, the people controlling these firms are not going to be driving the, the change. So these young lawyers are saying, I don't want to work in a place that is is stuffy, uh, that has a, a sort of a, a stuck in the past outlook, and they're saying, let's go out and do something different. So, young lawyers, I think, are the are the other major one that will be pushing uh, the legal landscape to change when they seek out alternatives. Okay, excellent. So you hear that, everybody? It's incumbent on us as new lawyers to actually take initiative and change things. Uh, you know, we really have the power to do it. Um, so what do you think are some strategies for success in this period of uh, considerable flux in the profession? Well, this goes back to what you were saying, too, as, as a warning to your listeners. It's, uh, they, you know, young lawyers have to look ahead. They have to uh, notice trends both in the, subs- the substance of the law, mm-hmm. where, where is the law going, and then in the practice of law itself, how, how do clients want to be served? Uh, lawyers and young lawyers should really be looking at their careers in a more entrepreneurial way than ever. Don't expect a, a law firm to hold your hand and take you to partnership and to uh, give you your career for you. It's up to you to, to find a niche and to find an area of law that you're, uh, you're going to enjoy and to really promote yourself in it as opposed to promoting a firm. Mm-hmm. A, a firm's brand name is a, it would be a terrible thing to bank the success of your career on. Right. And, uh, and if, I, if I just go back to the, the substance of the law, what I, what I mean by that is when there's a, a new piece of legislation or a, a new interpretation, look at ways that that will lead to the creation of new new work. Uh, a tangible example that I worked on was uh, at my, my former firm, Sotos LLP, with, they, they had a strong focus on franchising law, mm-hmm. but the franchise legislation in Ontario only came into effect in the year 2000. Okay. So if you were a lawyer in the year 2000 and you see a new statute and you said, this is going to be the sort of, uh, a hotbed of litigation and a, mm. l- a lot of work is going to come out of this statute, get in there early. You can sort of own that piece of, of legislation, build a practice around it, and uh, you'll, you'll become the, the go-to lawyer for that, uh, that area of law. But you do need to have a bit of foresight and you need to look yeah. at it in a, with an entrepreneurial outlook as to how that will affect your career. Great. That is awesome advice. So let's talk specifically about tech. I read uh, Tomorrow's Lawyers by Richard Susskind yesterday. He's the best-selling author of The End of Lawyers. Can you imagine a world without lawyers? I thought thought Tomorrow's Lawyers was a pretty engaging primer on the changing landscape of the legal industry, the commoditization of legal services, and the impact of technology, and also the future role of legal graduates. I will say that some of his predictions, in my estimation, will take a considerable amount of time to materialize, if at all. Um, it was released in 2012, so it is a little dated, but I would definitely recommend it for anyone interested in the business of providing legal services. It's 160 pages, so you can give it a quick read. So, to start off, Shane, 
We met at the Legal X launch at Mars last month. Uh, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about that initiative? Sure. Well, I think we'll have to back up a bit and just talk about you know, Mars and what Mars is. So sure. If, if your listeners aren't aware of Mars, it is a publicly funded institution in, in downtown Toronto, just uh, across the street from U of T, which brands itself as an innovation hub. And it, it's a beautiful building, and I'd encourage your listeners to come down and, and, and check it out. And the way it's organized is in clusters of various startups in, in several industries. So, for example, there's a, a cluster of financial tech startups bringing innovation to the financial world. There's educational tech startups focused on educational technology. And now Mars has identified legal technology as a real growth area for the next couple of years. So the Legal X initiative is, to, is hoping to group together a set of startups that are focused on legal technology, put them under one roof, and to get, get them to collaborate with other startups in the building and other startups in Ontario and elsewhere to really push for change and innovation in the legal industry through primarily Ontario-based startups like, like Law Scout. Awesome. So, that, so that's how we ended up in this space. And, uh, and with Legal X, we are working with others to sort of get the word out that law is changing and there are you know this is happening right here in Toronto awesome so in Suskin's book he identifies three stages of change in the legal industry the first being denial where there's a hope for no real change the second being resources uh, resourcing where you're looking for alternative sourcing for routine legal work and the third being disruption um, so the introduction of technology to really disrupt practice in a profound way uh, right now, what stage would you say we're in? There are certainly lawyers and law firms operating at each of those stages. Denial is still a fairly common reaction we, we hear when we're out talking to people about legal tech. Mm-hmm. There are people that think this is a, a passing trend and that it's going to be business as usual for the foreseeable future. There's a lot of debate about the timelines as to whether, you know, if change is coming, is it change in five years or are we talking change in 50 years? But overall, the, the trend now is for any firm that takes its business seriously to invest in technology. So there's an outlook which I would describe as innovation by acquisition. You acquire tools and that's how you view your innovation strategy, which is helpful to a certain extent, and there are great tools out there. We can talk talk about some of them, mm-hmm. but the the disruption to get to that third phase of uh, of how Suskin lays it out requires innovation to legal processes and, mm-hmm. as you said, commoditization. So the ones that are working on at the real cutting edge of innovation right now are are going beyond just the tools and the technology, looking at their processes and saying how can we deliver legal work in a more efficient way, both for our own resources as lawyers, but also efficient and more affordable for our clients. I think that's going to be the disruptive phase when we get beyond just uh, trendy tools that lawyers can use Mm -hmm. and get very serious about how we're doing our jobs in a way that services our clients' interests better. Okay. So you mentioned mentioned the word tools. What... uh, what types of technology are being used right now and who's using them? The real trend right now is artificial intelligence in law. Okay. And, we, and this, it's a very exciting area and there's some great work 
happening here uh, here in Toronto. I think the the company that's really at the forefront of that is is called Kira K K I R A, which is uh, essentially an automated way of doing contract review. Mm-hmm. Now this should scare law students and articling students right now because when you think of how much work as an articling student, primarily at large firms too, uh, is spent doing due diligence, document right. review. There, this has been under attack for a long time by sending this type of work overseas. Mm-hmm. There's people who've made a fortune setting up uh, LPOs, legal process outsourcing organizations, by getting lawyers in India and elsewhere to do this due diligence and document review. But that was only part of it. Now that we have groups like Kira and sophisticated artificial intelligence doing due diligence and document review, they are entirely automating that process and don't even need to send this across the world, let alone hire an articling student to do it for them. So that, I think, is, is really at the, the forefront right now. Uh, and, and as for speaking about careers as lawyers, too, the, mm-hmm. the, the head of Kira is a guy named Noah Weisberg, who left a job at a, a top-tier firm in New York when he, was, he got this idea for how to... Uh, instead of outsourcing legal work to get it done through a computer platform. Mm-hmm. Noah's here in, in Toronto beer, building Kira, and he's even now hiring on young lawyers and people who have articled at big firms to support him in, de- in building the system. So it's, okay. it, it, it's truly a, a new direction, and I think that's, a, that's just one example of, of several artificial intelligence platforms uh, that lawyers are using, and Kira is being implemented at large firms here in Toronto. Okay, interesting. So then, not all hope is lost for for uh, new lawyers and for articling students. It's just, you know, potentially in the future, and we'll talk more about this later. There will just be different roles. So the the structure might be different. Like when you're coming out of uh, law school or as a recent call, you just might be fulfilling a different task in this in this industry potentially. Yes, and the key question then to ask is when you're going through your interviews and you're looking at places to start your career, talk to the junior lawyers in their first three years of practice. How much of their time is spent doing due diligence and document review? Mm -hmm. And if they say a significant portion, think about Kira, think about artificial intelligence, and think about how these jobs might not be there by the time you start. So go to a firm where you're actually going to get practical experience and not do uh, too much time on uh, document review. Okay, so I was going to ask the question, but I think you already answered it in that technology is for everyone, it will be necessary to embrace it to sustain a practice. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm here saying yes, I, and I've kind of staked my career on the fact that I think yes, technology is for everyone and it's necessary. At the Advocate Society at an event uh, just about a month ago, and there were some lawyers midway through their career who were taking the position that this radical form of innovation is still 20 or 30 years out and mm-hmm. you know, why should I why, why should I be worried about this just they're they're saying it is business as usual and I'm just gonna ride out my career and leave the next generation to deal with it my only counter argument to that is well what if you're wrong <laughs> if you're wrong and, and you're doing nothing now to embrace innovation and to embrace change well then if I'm right and change is coming right away then these guys are gonna be out of their career um, yeah. And they're going to be replaced by a generation of, of young, younger lawyers who have embraced technology. 
So that's the debate. I think you only benefit by embracing technology and embracing it early. Right. Uh, so I, I don't think for any other reason than that self-interested, I'm going to take what I can get now and retire before I have to change. Yeah. I, I just don't think that's a, a good reaction to the current landscape. Yeah. But I even th- I also think it's not necessarily just for selfish reasons. Like people or practicing lawyers, uh, they might just be scared of change. They might be scared about uh, investing in the future because they really don't know where it's going to go. Like, you know, because these are these technologies are still in their nascent stages, they might figure like, well, what if it fails? What if it actually goes a different, like what if there's a technology that goes a different direction or there's just a different business model? So that's also, I think, another consideration. There is, and that leads a bit into your professional obligations as a lawyer. Within the rules of professional conduct, you have an obligation as a lawyer to conduct your practice efficiently. Mm-hmm. And efficiency and technology have to be thought of in the, in the same thought because Technology is there to make your practice more efficiently, so to work more efficiently. So can you honestly say, I am fulfilling my professional obligation to practice efficiently mm-hmm. when you ignore technology and you're still sending faxes and <laughs> you know letters by regular mail and communicating in a way like... Carrier pigeon. Carrier pigeon, why not? <laughs> and, and to say, I, it's just business as usual. No, I think you do have to look at, at technology in order to fulfill the, uh, your obligation to, to serve your clients efficiently. Okay, so we've spoken about you, the future of law practice, technology's impact. I'd now like to shift gears back to you, actually. Um, So why don't you tell me what's been keeping you busy these days and, I guess, for the past few years, because it's definitely not the practice of law. (laughs) Well, the practice of law did keep me busy up until two two months ago when I left left my job at uh, Sotos, but now I'm devoting my full time to Law Scout, it's lawscout.ca, which is the new tech startup I've uh, founded with one other lawyer and a computer programmer who's based in San Francisco. And uh, basically what Lawscout is, is it's a, an online system for small businesses, entrepreneurs, and tech startups to find the legal help they need entirely online at fixed fee pricing. Okay. So then, like you said, it was just launched a month ago, right? That's right. Okay, so very fresh. So what motivated you? I mean, we probably you've probably answered all this, but what motivated you to really start Law Scout? How did it all come to be? Like you had to make a decision, you know? Yeah, well, it goes back about two years ago when our the guy who's currently our, our CTO here, Travis, uh, was he's had a long career in computer programming and was in the process in 2013 of selling off his startup to Yahoo uh, and moving his operations to San Francisco. And during that process, of course, he hired a lawyer Mm -hmm. and he just had a lot of questions about the way lawyers conduct their business. So naturally, because he's an old friend of mine, he he would call me up and and say, you know, is is it normal that a lawyer can't tell me exactly how much this is going to (laughs) cost? Is it normal that there's no real timelines to getting this done and everything (laughs) seems to uh, just happen whenever the lawyer has a free moment? Yeah. He would ask me, is this the way lawyers really work? And I'd have to say, yes, that actually is it. That's the way the legal industry conducts itself. And you're pretty much stuck with that as a client. So ever since that time, we've we had a lot of discussions over the course of the last two years about, well, what can we do to improve that experience as a client at a law firm? What would make a, 
a client think, I'm getting great service from my law firm and they are embracing technology the way any other industry would. The, the way lawyers treat their clients is would be unacceptable in a lot of other industries to give these really vague answers on critical issues of timing and cost. Okay. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more like the actual mechanics of how it works. So if you're if you're a lawyer who's who's partnered with Law Scout or whether a, a potential client, how do you go about it? Sure. Well, if we start from the client's experience, the client goes to lawscout.ca, they click on a button that says get started, mm-hmm. and then we have a simple graphic interface which is intended to help the client identify their legal needs at a specific stage of their business so that they can follow through and see, for example, if they haven't yet incorporated, we'll quickly identify that's an initial thing your business will need, and then they can find out how much that's going to cost. They simply create an account. We match them with a lawyer who will do that legal work for them, be it incorporation or a shareholder's agreement, Mm -hmm. uh, all for a fixed fee. And then we have uh, an online workroom where they can track the progress of their lawyer's work by simply logging in to their Law Scout account. This saves the client from having to call or email their lawyer mm-hmm. to to get updates. And of course, the funny thing is when you call your lawyer to get an update, you'll be charged an additional fee for the oh, lawyer's time exactly. in updating you. That's yeah. simply how most firms work. So we, we've taken that out of the equation by just creating an account where you can track the progress of your lawyer's work until completion. Okay, so is there an opportunity if the client wishes to actually get in touch with the lawyer, call them up, um, or maybe even meet face-to-face if need be? There's always an opportunity to, to call the lawyer. To we, we encourage our lawyers to accept inquiries via text message. It's how the client wants to communicate. If they mm-hmm. insist on an in-person meeting, we certainly don't say no, but perhaps it's our demographic with a, a lot of tech companies. If they can avoid a face-to-face meeting, they will. They don't. Okay. They don't view that as necessary. They you know, we have lawyers that Skype with their clients, and okay. like I said, whatever the client wants and whatever the client's comfortable with. But we're nef- definitely not trying to remove the lawyer from the equation. Okay, it's about finding ways to connect lawyers and clients that's more efficient and meets the client's expectations of how they should work with a lawyer. Okay, so these lawyers. Who are they? Do they are they operating out of firms already? Are they sole practitioners? Who can sign up for Law Scout? At the moment, you can only sign up to Law Scout if you're personally invited by one of the founders because okay. we carefully vet the quality of, of the lawyers who are using the site. We're, we're we're within our first month, so we are not in a position to simply let any lawyer use our services. Mm-hmm. But as I practiced it for nearly five years, I've got a good network of lawyers, so we're directing that work to lawyers that we know and feel qualified. Uh, in the future, we'll, we'll broaden it, and uh, but we'll never allow it to just be that any lawyer can sign up. There'll be a, okay. a vetting process. The idea is that when law school matches you with a lawyer, you'll have some comfort in knowing that it's a lawyer that's been vetted for the for your specific needs in the stage of your company. Okay, interesting. So in a sense, Law Scout is kind of like Uber in that it's simply a platform for connecting clients or customers with service provider. Yeah, I, I've heard the comparison to Uber being made. I'm not sure if I, I totally agree with it, but the way okay. you describe it is right. I think it's it's almost similar to Airbnb more than more than Uber okay. in a way <laughs> that we we we're, we're but you've got the 
the essence of it is correct. We are the um, the system that provides the back backbone of technology for a mm-hmm. legal transaction, and also we we connect one party to another. Okay, so looking into the future, say when you expand this network of lawyers that are associated with Law Scout, how do they benefit? Lawyers love it already okay. because we have automated a lot of the mundane tasks that lawyers and law firms need to do before they even start the legal work. So for example, the client intake process is always something that that takes a lawyer or their assistant or clerk some time to simply open a file, run conflict checks, mm-hmm. and to, uh, to ID the client. We, we've got a system in place to, to automate all of that process. So that saves the lawyer time right there. We through entering your information on Law Scout, you provide a lot of information on what exactly your needs are for your company. Okay. So we give the lawyer a report on who this client is, what are they looking for exactly. That saves the, the, the lawyer time and makes their uh, service delivery more efficient. And finally, we, actually, we have an automated payment system too, which lawyers love because they don't have to worry about whether or not they'll get paid and they don't have to chase their clients for money. Great. That's all automated through Law Scout. So the feedback from lawyers has been, has been fantastic so far. That's awesome to hear. Very happy for you. Um, so let's talk now about uh, fixed fees versus the billable hour. Do you think the billable hour is dead? And uh, what types of legal services or practice areas, for that matter, warrant billing by the hour? The billable hour is certainly not dead. It's the primary way most lawyers get paid. But the the fundamental problem with it, or there's at least one fundamental problem with it, is that it doesn't encourage efficiency. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it doesn't take a genius to notice that the more hours it takes, the more the lawyer will get paid. So where's the incentive, apart from simply doing your job honestly, which I believe (laughs) most lawyers do, but it doesn't give you a financial incentive to be efficient in your practice. Mm Uh, so that's, and with fixed fee billing, I think it's often just a matter of, of risk that lawyers are risk adverse and don't want to step up and, and give a quote on a, on a service that they're going to stand behind. Okay. Uh, they would rather divert that risk back to the client. So the client ends up paying more and the lawyer can ensure that their time is, is compensated. Right. But we're, we're definitely seeing a movement away from that as Lawyers are, as I said at the start, going to be expected to operate more like engineering firms, construction firms, and yes. and stay on budget or else give a very good excuse why things haven't stayed on budget. So if you let me, I actually dug up a, a quote yesterday from uh, Kenneth Grady, who's sort okay. of a, a guru of what's called the lean law movement, sort of bringing law firm costs down and serving clients better. He's at a firm called Safe Arth Shaw in the okay. States. So, so yesterday he, he said, said this about fixed fees. He said, could we please put to rest the fallacy that predicting the cost of legal matters is really difficult because of the variables and just admit we don't want to gather and crunch the data? <laughs> the NASA space probe New Horizons arrives at dwarf planet Pluto after nine and a half years within <laughs> 72 seconds of planned arrival time. So that, that's the end of his quote. Well, you know, the, the point he's making is that if, if you do spend the time looking at your data, thinking about a legal project carefully, you should know your industry and be able to, to provide uh, 
a, a fixed fee cost on I, I think any any service, but it does require firms to look at their business differently. Okay, great. It's fascinating. So the last topic I want to tackle is that of legal training in the face of a legal industry being reshaped by technology, fixed fees, and the fragmentation or diversification, however you like to call it, of legal services. So my first question to you, Shane, is do you think law schools are adequately preparing law students for tomorrow's legal marketplace? That, that, that's a question I grapple with because I, I don't think it's really the job of law schools to necessarily turn themselves into job training centers. If the law firms are hiring lawyers, well then job training is a part of any other job and they should, they should address that. So I don't want to tell the law schools themselves what they should do in their curriculum. Mm-hmm. I think where they should be honest is about the, the cost of going to law school and the opportunities that are going to be there after you get out of law school. Okay. I remember when I was uh, looking at law schools back in the, when I was about to start law school, when I guess it was 2006, uh, going to an information session at the University of Toronto where the, uh, the recruiter person literally said, a University of Toronto law degree is a license to print money. And despite that being a, a, a cliche, it's, it, it's, it's terrible to, to give people uh, this impression that, uh, that there's simply a, a bucket of money waiting for them upon graduation. Mm-hmm. It also downplays the, the very important uh, role of lawyers who aren't going into commercial law. And we haven't discussed that, but right. you know, I, I think in all of these discussions, we have to acknowledge criminal lawyers, family lawyers, immigration Absolutely. and refugee lawyers doing fantastic work. Uh, and most of this discussion has been about the commercial place, but uh, the, uh, the those lawyers in those other fields obviously need to be supported, and we, we should probably have another discussion about in- innovation in those fields and how we can Absolutely. support them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so with the with the law schools, uh, they they have to look at the changing marketplace in terms of allowing people to make an informed decision as to whether they're going to invest that much money and time into going to law school, and then they should also give people some. Uh, what they should give students an idea of what's happening in the legal marketplace, innovation and changes, okay. so they can then uh, look at their career within the first few years after graduating and in an informed way where they won't be so dependent upon traditional career paths as those paths are changing. Okay, so I guess uh, I'm... Uh, I threw a lot in there, I'm sorry. No, 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 no that's <laughs> cool, that's cool, it's all good. Um, so if you had to... I mean, you're talking about uh, students just being aware of what's out there, more so than restructuring the curriculum or legal training. But if you had the opportunity to tweak the curriculum, say, of law schools, maybe to add courses to really just open students' eyes or as part of uh, bar admission to better prepare lawyers for what lies ahead of them, because bar admission in in the provinces, it's different throughout, right? Like there could be courses... And assignments, I think that's what they do in Alberta, whereas here we ha- in Ontario we have the online course, which is, which is good, and you know, we have to write the bar exam. So did you have any ideas there? In, in terms of courses, one of Canada's foremost thinkers on legal innovation, Mitch Kowalski, mm-hmm. uh, does have a, a course on legal innovation and new directions for the delivery of, uh, of legal services to the public. And he, he's not a, a professor, as far as I know, at any specific law school, but he, he seems to take himself on tour uh, mm-hmm. semester by semester, and he's been at several law schools uh, 
he wasn't there when I was at, at McGill, but I think there, there's definitely room for a, a course in, in legal innovation and, uh, and different service models. And to I, I could see it more as a senior level session on uh, or a seminar type course on thinking uh-huh. of ways to uh, to build access to justice through technology. I, I'd love to see some initiatives like that in, in the law schools, but I, I don't think there's necessarily a need to fundamentally alter the, the entire law school curriculum around the marketplace, okay. uh, but some, some thinking about legal innovation and ways of, of making access to justice sort of a core value of any law school graduate, right. uh, those initiatives would be, would be fantastic. Okay. And I guess one way that, uh, you know, the impact of technology could be infused into law school tra- or legal training law school is just the, literally the impact on the law that technology has. I think specifically of copyright law, for instance. I mean, that's, that's you know, one way that students can uh, become attuned to the changing landscape and the types of issues, if they are, if they decide to practice, the types of issues that they will have to deal with in the future. Because there's a growing, I, I imagine there's a growing body of case law and new statutes that are coming out to address the impact of technology, right? Exactly, and I think that's totally fair. In, in a class like intellectual property, mm-hmm. to give someone a, a fair idea of what a copyright lawyer does on a day-to-day basis is doing everyone a service, uh, as long as it's not diluting the uh, the intellectual problems they're there to, exactly. to grapple with in the first place when they go to university. But, but I think a lot of people do end up taking courses in a specific subject matter with absolutely no idea what they practice of that area involves, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, as we all know, the practice is sometimes not nearly as glamorous as the <laughs> academic subject itself. For sure. Okay, so I'm going to ask you again to look into your crystal ball Please. and predict where the opportunities exist for new lawyers in the next five to ten years. So I guess this question can be broken down into two parts. Uh, what types of roles do you foresee in the future? If someone, for a lawyer, a licensed lawyer, who may not necessarily practice law. What else can they do with the advent of technology and everything we just spoke about? Well, there's definitely a few outlets opening up right now. Uh, I mentioned Kira. I won't go on about them too much longer, but it's very exciting to see people leaving jobs in established, highly reputable firms and saying, you know what, I'm going to help Kira develop products which lawyers are going to to use. Mm-hmm. And there, there's several other tech companies out there which are drawing on the knowledge and the experience of, of junior lawyers and uh, and helping that company work with technology to, to get those jobs done better. So I, I think the tech sector is in the need of, of lawyers. And it, you know it's good if you have a few years of practice. You don't need to For stick sure. around for a decade by any means. Mm-hmm. But I, I think working in practice, even if you're thinking about getting into tech, uh, it's it's complementary, and you shouldn't leave practice too early. Make sure you you've got what you can get out of practice, okay. and then move on to tech. But the the real emerging roles are also with those junior lawyers. Again, you need a little mentorship or a little help when you get started, but you don't need to to be a senior partner 20 years out in order to develop a book of business. Mm-hmm. And that's something a lot of junior lawyers need to think about is that it's much more rewarding and exciting to have your own practice. And the only secret to it is going out and getting people to trust you that you can do do work and do good work uh, and 
be fair, transparent, and <laughs> someone they can trust. Yeah. So, so don't, and the, you know, going back to my crystal ball, there's going to be less lawyers affiliated with firms in the first place. There's going to be a lot of sole practitioners or right. people operating in you know, two or three person partnerships who are always looking for alliances with other people in a similar position. Interesting. So, for example, if you're operating as a sole practitioner, but you come across an excellent case which requires expertise in a specific area, you'll seek out a lawyer with a very narrowly defined niche, mm -hmm. and you'll seek to take on cases with them. So that I think there's going to be just so much uh, reliance on trust between lawyers and relationships among lawyers. So basically, you know, get out and stay on good terms with your classmates, mm -hmm. and uh and you'll find uh, opportunities to collaborate in the future. Yeah, I think that's the key. I think it's, you know, just from what I've read and what I've seen, I think it's going to be a more fluid landscape where there is that collaboration between young lawyers who have different ideas of what they want their life to be, and they might just want more flexibility in their practice and, and in their careers and in their lives. That's it, and you don't need a bricks-and-mortar office to do that either. Right. Uh, you don't need an assistant often if you've carefully managed your technology and and uh, got your processes in place in a very efficient way. So that's why we'll have sort of freelance lawyers taking mm -hmm. on work. We hope that in the future that they'll be using LawScout for some of their work, and then other work will be they'll be there's just no other way of getting it other than putting yourself in the community and uh, meeting people, uh, connecting via social media, if you will. But uh, that you know, those are the ways people are going to get get good business, and the way they're going to serve those clients is going to be different. Okay, cool. So we're going to close things up now, Shane. Um, perhaps you can shed some light on what's next for you and for Law Scout in the coming months or years. Absolutely. We're excited to be expanding Law Scout out to other jurisdictions. We hope to be in at least two more Canadian provinces within a few months, and then we're looking at expanding across Canada and into the States in 2016. And then from there, we'll just be expanding our service offering. We're focused right now on small businesses and entrepreneurs, but there's plenty of other groups of clients that we're hoping to target with new offerings and bring on more, more lawyers on board who are enjoying using our, our services. That's awesome. That sounds really exciting. And, uh, you know, wish you the best of luck with Law Scout and, you know, in the future. Um, maybe you can recommend uh, to our listeners some literature or the names of commentators on law and technology. You mentioned someone earlier. Maybe you can remind, remind everybody. Yeah, it, for someone who's looking at the Canadian legal industry and change in, in Canadian law firms, Mitch Kowalski is okay. really the, uh, the leading writer. Uh, you'll, you know, he, he blogs, he writes in the National Post occasionally, and he is even coming out with a new book. I'm not sure the title that's been, uh, been announced yet, but Mitch Kowalski is really the one to watch in, in Canada. Okay. Uh, in, in the U.S., there's a group of academics affiliated with uh, Stanford University in a group called CodeX. Uh -huh. So any of the, the writers uh, affiliated with CodeX are, are excellent and definitely worth looking into. Sweet. Thank you. And uh, as I had previously mentioned, the author of Tomorrow's Lawyers, Richard Susskind, is, is also a well-known author in this field. And he's based out of the UK, so he speaks largely about uh, practice in the UK, but also does touch on uh, you know the United States and in Canada. He's commonly cited in these sorts of discussions yeah. as sort of the, the leading thinker globally. So exactly. definitely worth looking into Susskind. Great, great. 
Okay, great. On behalf of the Law School Show and its listeners, I want to thank you, Shane, and uh, commend you for being a great sport and providing an awesome interview. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot, Marco. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thank you. Again, listeners, if you want to learn more about Law Scout, be sure to check out the website lawscout.ca and follow the company on Twitter under at mylawscout. And, of course, don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about it. This is Marco Filiumeni of the Law School Show signing off. Cheers. Like to interact with us, learn more about our past guests, check out the blog, video.